On this episode of Turning Final, we'll be discussing Boeing's brand new 787-10 and the inaugural flight of Delta's A220. Plus, stick around for a very exclusive interview. All right, so our first article comes to us from CNET.com, where today, uh, February 9th, 2019, is the 50th anniversary of the Boeing 747. So in honor of this, I thought we would uh, go through a little bit of the history of the 747, all the different variations, and uh, what the situation is with the aircraft today. So interestingly enough, the 747 uh, started out as a contract design for the U.S. military that it lost to the uh, or it lost to Lockheed Martin in 1965, which became the C-5 Galaxy. But they still used the design, and they had encouragement from airlines like uh, Pan Am, who wanted uh, a large aircraft for its uh, many overseas routes. They ended up using the design anyways, turning it into a passenger airliner so that Pan Am could fly it on these longer um, overseas routes. And so, uh, in 1966, Pan Am ordered 25 of these um, first iteration 747s, and that's how it was born, basically. And um, interestingly enough, at the time, Boeing was also working on um, a supersonic transport to compete with the Concorde called uh, the 2707, um, and this and then this uh, ended up never panning out. But um, they they originally wanted to build the I think it was. Uh, the world's biggest plane and the world's fastest plane because this was way before the uh, A380's time. So unfortunately, the 2707 never panned out, but um, Boeing did see light in the 747, and they assigned one of their chief um, engineers, Mr. Joe Sutter, who had worked on um, all of Boeing's other planes, and they assigned him to this project, and he did a spectacular job with it. He became the lead engineer of the project, um, and even though his team faced a number of challenges, from finding a suitable engine to keeping the aircraft's weight down, um, they were able to create this uh, this game-changer of a plane, and they ended up selling a lot of them to uh, these commercial airlines like Pan Am, and I believe United bought a couple, and... Uh, couple other airlines did as well yeah and so the the 747 became uh, a huge success and um, more than just being able to carry uh, hundreds of passengers um, for a cheap price across uh, the oceans it was really economical for airlines um, being this kind of introduced the first um, iteration of uh, having so many passengers on a large plane that it ended up balancing out the fuel costs because these things um, at the time they were more economical but uh, they still cost a lot in fuel because they're large planes that needed a lot of fuel and oil. But um, they still ended up being uh, very economical for the airlines. And, um, you know, throughout the years, uh, they came out with more economical ones, the 200, the 300, the 400, the most popular version, and now the 8i. But um, they were always a really popular jet with the airlines um, up until uh, lately when we uh, hit the new millennium. And also by the end of 2018, Boeing had built more than uh, 1,500 of all the different types of 747s. And uh, with the last one being the 747-8i, unfortunately, which was not nearly as popular as the 400. And sadly, uh, airlines are gradually sending their 747s to retirement. Uh, we saw the last uh, U.S. Uh, airline-based 747 go to retirement from Delta back in uh, December, I believe it was. Or, I'm sorry, November. Or no, it was December. Um, and then 
the 400, the, the classic series, you can still see them flying for some of the uh, European airlines, like British Airways still has a fair amount, Lufthansa still has a good bit, and um, I think a couple of Asian ones do. But most of them now are either getting rid of them completely or replacing them with the 8i. So we will, throughout the next uh, decade or two, still see the 747. Obviously, you know, the 400 is going to be close to being gone in the next couple years but it'll be lived out through the 8i so uh, we still have at least a decade or two before the 747 is completely phased out of commercial aviation so is age the primary reason you foresee it just being phased out or is it technically inferior or inferior to some of these new plants that are coming out um i think it has a little bit to do with both obviously um you know it's really rare for um, an airline project and program to go 50 years. I think this is probably the longest um, airline project that's been going as of right now. Um, you know, and they can they can keep building more economical versions of the 747. But the fact is that um, it just cannot compare with um, twin-engine jets now, because you know the new um, and even Boeing knows this because they're building. Uh, new planes that are taking a lot of the market share away from the 747s, like the new 777X, which is going to be the biggest twin, uh, the, the biggest wide body twin engine jet on the market. Um, it can carry probably a pretty close amount of people to the 747 in a three class configuration, and um, it's way more economical to operate. So I think um, to answer your question, it has a little bit to do with both. Yeah, and personally, I've never been on a 747, and it's probably going to be a regret of mine, even though I'm mo mostly an Airbus fan. But like the routes I fly and I will be flying in the future, unfortunately, none of them will probably have a 7-4 on it. So the only person between the two of us who's actually been on one is you. So you're the only one here who actually has any knowledge or recollection of them. Uh, yeah, so um, my very first... Uh, flight out of North America, so intercontinental flight, was on a United 747. I went from uh, San Francisco to London, that was back in 2012 or 2013, one of the two, and from what I can remember, um, it was uh, a really cool flight. You know, the interior of it wasn't the nicest thing I've ever seen, but uh, to me that didn't really matter because I was well aware of like uh, how iconic the 747 was and how lucky I was to be on it. And I knew that it was a plane that was um, starting to be phased out. And uh, even though they were super popular with pilots and uh, passengers, the airlines themselves um, were starting to get rid of them. And so I was just at the time really happy and I felt really lucky to be part of um, the 747 history. And um, I think that's all that mattered really to me at that moment besides um, the actual interior itself and how it compared to other flights I've been on. Yeah, and that's something that aviation people will always cherish is being on inaugural flights or retirement flights uh, because, you know, once the, the retirement flight's over, you know, that's it. You're not going to see that particular aircraft again. It'll be being phased out. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, you'll, you'll always remember for the as long as you live. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I was also lucky enough to be on... Um, the last um, in-service United 747. I was on the uh, 
the flight from Seoul, South Korea to San Francisco. So it wasn't technically the last flight of the United 747. They later did a remembrance flight from San Francisco to Honolulu. But um, at the time, this was uh, the last one that was available to book on United's website. And um, so I worked my ass off for a summer and saved up my money and I bought a ticket on it. And I've got to say, that's probably uh, the best experience I've ever had on an airplane, let alone just the 747, compared to all of my other flights that I've been on. And that was solely because United did such a good job in uh, celebrating and um, just remembering the 747. I mean, there was a celebration at the gate in Seoul, and on the airplane itself, there was people from all around the world who were doing the exact same thing I was. Um, they just wanted to be on the very last flight or what we thought at the time was the very last flight and i even got to meet um one of the more famous youtubers sam chui he was on the flight i got to talk to him for a little bit uh he invited me to sit next to him on his business class seat which i was super grateful for because i wasn't looking forward to sitting in my middle seat that i had originally bought for the way back but um it was just such a good time. I was able to talk to so many like-minded people and other people who are in the industry who could give me advice on my uh, career and my future, but also just people who shared my passion for the 747 and were there for the exact same reason I was. Yeah, and when you talk about United and the 747, the first thing come, that comes to mind is icon because you know obviously it was big with delta they had the retirement flights and whatnot but like when i think of legacy carriers here in the united states and i think 747 i kind of immediately go to united so the fact that you were able to experience stuff like that's pretty cool yeah and that just goes to show that i think united did a really good job of um you know celebrating the life of the 747 and giving it um you know a good send-off to when they eventually did retire it but yeah i think um the 747 in the united livery is one of the more iconic and recognizable ones and that might have something to do with the fact that um they've been operating ever since uh, the 100 to 200 variant and um i believe they even acquired some of the pan am ones uh and so they, they've been, uh, it's been a part of their fleet for a very long time. And I think people have um, been able to see through all the different generations and iterations of the 747 that it's always been a part of United's fleet. Yeah, and that and that's kind of leads me to this point, which is going to be, you know, the 747 was iconic and it's going to be greatly missed when they're all completely gone in the next years, upcoming years, who knows exactly when, but... That just kind of leads to there's going to be another aircraft out there that's going to be just as iconic as the 747 way down the line. We just don't know what it is yet, and it's in service right now. So, you know, we're going to have these same feelings here, you know, the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years about some other aircraft. So it just kind of shows, you know, with the track record and a history, you kind of, the legacy grows. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point there. It's going to be interesting to see um, what aircraft, if any, kind of takes the place of the 747 so to speak and in that um it'll become super iconic and like you said we don't know what it is right now but it might be in service and it's just going to take time to realize like what exactly it will be and but i what i can say right now about it is that i think it's going to have a lot to do with um uh how it's liked by passengers and pilots alike because as we saw with the 747 um it was very popular among the airlines themselves, but once these newer planes started to come out, um, airlines 
wanted the more economical option and it didn't really matter what the pilots and passengers thought about it because i think if they had their way right now they would keep the 747 for a much longer period but unfortunately um that's not the way it operates and boeing doesn't listen to the pilots and passengers in terms of deciding to keep a uh, a program alive and so um i think only time will tell to see what kind of the next really iconic airplane will be yeah and if i had to guess i'm not going to say the md80 because you know americans are already phasing those out and there doesn't seem to be that much of a stir amongst aviation people um if i were to guess right now if i for a narrow body i'd say the 737 800 because the max just came out and there'll be more innovations to improve upon that here soon so pretty soon the uh the 800 and 700 would be kind of really old compared to the newer 737s that are coming out. So for narrow body, I'd say it's going to be the 737. And then for wide body, maybe the, the original legacy 777 because, you know, they're coming out the X and whatnot. So if I had a guess between wide body and narrow body, those would be the two. I, I'm not exactly sure what wide body would take the place of it but i actually tend to think that um maybe instead of the 737 being the more iconic one i actually think that um the 757 is gonna have more uh, at least within the next few uh, more recent decades i think the 757 is gonna have um, a bigger impact with aviation uh, aficionados in the fact that it's already um discontinued and Boeing plans to kind of replace the market that the 757 takes with the new Max series and with the potential of the new 797 that they're working on right now. So I tend to think since, you know, there's still a 737 variations being produced and that's kind of like the 747. However, you know, um, just like the 747, the 757 is going to be uh, gone within the next decade or so, maybe even less than that. And, um, but just like the 747, it was super popular with pilots, and uh, passengers thought it was a really cool airplane. It looked, um, you know, it, it had an iconic look to it as well, especially the 300 version, how it was so long. So I think um, maybe before we see more iconicity within the 737, I think it's going to have to go to the 757. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point there. But you also maybe, I don't know if it'll rival the 75, but maybe the 767, because those are fairly old as well. And also have done their fair share of carrying passengers around yeah you know who knows maybe the 767 will be as well um especially from a pilot standpoint because uh they're so similar in terms of the cockpit layout and um i even heard that if you're type rated for the 757 it takes a little to no training to also get a type rating for the 767 and so um maybe you'll be right but like i said earlier um it's going to be super hard these are just really ballpark predictions as of right now so it's just we're going to have to see where time takes us with this, I guess. All right, our next segment is about the brand new 787-10 that United launched into service on January 7th of this year, 2019. Uh, the route was Los Angeles LAX to Newark EWR, uh, and it took off early in the morning and whatnot. Um, in addition to this being the inaugural flight of United 787-10, it kind of introduced the world to its brand, kind of brand new, almost, just a little bit, uh, Polaris Business Class. Um, with this Polaris Business Class, it's got uh, roughly around 44-ish seats. Um, 
and it's got about 199 economy seats so it holds quite a few people uh, it's also about 18 feet longer has a longer 18 feet longer wingspan than the uh, uh, not wingspan but 18 feet longer just in total than the dash 9 variant so it's a little bit longer holds a little bit more people it's got some pretty cool perks the Polaris business class so overall it's kind of an upgrade to both the 800 and 900 variants um, so United's plan was to kind of get everybody hooked domestically on it, kind of get them to test it out, the new Dash 10, so they'll kind of see what it's all about before they start going overseas to kind of create a desire for it, rather than just launching right into overseas and people really don't know why they should book a flight on the 787 rather than any other aircraft. So, but their plan is, after a little bit, to start taking it overseas. Uh, but in the interim, they're doing LAX to Newark, San Francisco to Newark. They're even subbing it for some aircraft out of Denver going to Newark. But the common thread here is Newark. Uh, on March 30th, they're going to be going to Frankfurt, Tel Aviv, and then followed by Paris and Barcelona. Uh, and then April, and then uh, finally in May, they're going to be ending up going to Brussels and Dublin. So, I mean, their route might expand more than that internationally. But for right now, it's only going to be a few select international locations and then the Transcon here in the United States. Now, what I find interesting about this is that, one, United's made a commitment to technological advancements, not only in their systems, but in their aircraft and with their comfortability, whether it be the captain's comfort, the first officer's comfort, the crew's comfort, or even the passenger's with the whole new cabin layouts, the flight deck layouts, uh, easier uh, items f that are more accessible to the flight crew for the flight attendants, everything is kind of just more streamlined, so they've made a commitment to that, and they've showed it with this new 787-10. They've also showed a huge commitment to Boeing, because now they have, they're the first airline to have all three variants. That's huge. Um, American doesn't have that yet. Delta's not going to have it because they made a commitment to Airbus and the A350 and whatnot. So United is a major player and a major customer of Boeing. So that's and that just reaffirmed it with this new purchase of the Dash 10 variant. So I find that interesting. One and then two, I find it interesting that it's not going to be used as heavily as of right now internationally. Um, as some of the other aircraft like the 777 and whatnot. Even the 76 has quite a few international routes and 75. Um, so, I don't know. I read that. It was kind of a shocker to me because I'm, you know, I haven't flown much internationally recently, but the whole, I'm um, only going to go to four or five international destinations was kind of interesting to me. Now I understand, you know, the 777 can hold a lot more people um, than the 7-8, which is understandable, so they want to get the most money possible, so they need to jam as many people as possible in the aircraft, uh, but, yeah, and that's also another misconception people might have, is that, yes, the 787 is a wide-body aircraft, but no, it still doesn't hold as many as the 777 or 747, so they'll be using it on international routes, but I think, personally, it's 
going to be very popular on the transcon routes. Like Delta has a very popular transcon route that's LAX to JFK and back and whatnot. Um, this will kind of be the same thing in my opinion. And they use it on a 7.6 at Delta. So having a 7.8 dedicated to that route I think will be really popular amongst business travelers in the United States who want need to get coast to coast and they'll be paying for that Polaris uh, class uh, on this new 787-10. But I also know Matt's a huge United person, like almost solely flies United, and also is a huge Boeing fan, so let you get his thoughts on it. All right, yeah, so I pretty much agree with what you said. Um, I think um, largely what this new variant of the 787 is going to do is it's going to allow um, airlines just um, that extra, you know, 18 feet of seats um, so that they can get that extra revenue on some of the more lucrative um international and transcon flights um i largely think that um it's going to be creating more routes um than um, replacing older aircraft however i also do see this as um maybe replacing some older 767 routes and maybe even some of the older um triple seven two hundred routes because as of right now um united's i know are starting to get really old and i believe united are starting to um get rid get rid of their 767s and i know american has a plan to phase theirs out i'm not sure about delta but i i, I can definitely see the new um dash 10 variant um starting to replace some of those older um international uh routes that have the 767 and maybe even um the a330 and the a340 both of those are starting to get really old airbus discontinued the a340 back around 2006 i believe and they've come out with new versions of the a330 so um i think um mostly for airlines what this is going to do is just allow them to squeeze extra revenue out of um some of those more uh maybe the international flights that are not necessarily as popular for um or to justify using a bigger plane like the 777 the 747 or an a380 or maybe even an a350 1000 or something of that nature however um you know they're going to be using it on more of the uh, ones that have the lower um uh passenger count for the uh route but um you know maybe they're just also trying to um future proof it a little bit um plan on expansion for the route maybe they're getting a little bit more popular so i think that's what we'll see mainly uh, the two roles of the 787-10 do yeah and okay here's a question for you you are flying from LAX to JFK, and you're booking a flight, and you have two options. They leave within an hour of each other, so time's not really an issue. You can get on a 757-200 or a 787. Which one are you going to take? Um, I got to say, um, I'd probably take the 787, and here's why. Um, I really like the 757. However... Um, since uh i'm in a position where um, money for a ticket is not necessarily something that i have to worry about since i can fly standby um i gotta say i highly prioritize um you know flight comfort and uh the comfort of seats in that flight and we all know that the seven day seven is going to provide more co uh, a more comfortable cabin nicer cabin than the 757 um even though i would really like to fly on the 757 again i think um now that my priorities have changed since I've gotten these flight benefits, I think it really ha just has to do with um, how much better of a quality ride that the 787 offers rather than the, the 757. 
Yeah, exactly. And so I guess where I was going with this is since they're going to be flying this only domestically until roughly March, April-ish, um, that could always be delayed too, so we don't even know. But they're saying March as of right now. Business travelers are going to be mainly the ones flying it because it's Transcon. So, And they're going to be going for the, the Polaris seats and the, the whole comfortable experience and whatnot. And so I think it's going to really gain traction doing Transcon routes. And since it can't even hold as many as the 777 on international flights, so it's only going to be doing a few as of April, um, I'm going to make a bold prediction and say it doesn't actually gain as much international traction as some think it might. Um, and I think it might become just a transcon aircraft um, unless they can find a way to phase out more aircraft or just put fewer people on these 787s. So basically, maybe buy more of them and have flights, international flights with less people, but have more flights to, to compensate for the fact that you're not bringing a 777 overseas. Uh, you're, instead of having one flight, you have two flights to make up for that fact. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a wide-body aircraft, but it's kind of in that gray area where... It's wide-body, but it doesn't have as many seats as a 777. So it's like, and yet it kind of is close to the size, but it's not quite as, it's it's an interesting plane to me in that it's got so much potential, but you don't really know where they're going to go with it. I mean, at least I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I largely agree. I, As of right now, it's really hard to see what market this uh, new 787 variant is going to fill. Because like I said, um, you know, it's got the increased uh, passenger capacity, but they also decreased the range on it. So it's definitely not going to be flying uh, the longer international flights, like maybe from the East Coast to Asia or even the West Coast to places like Singapore or Australia. I don't think it's going to um, add any, uh, I don't think it's going to be fulfilling any of those routes. But I could definitely, like you said, see it um, fulfill more routes where. Um, Maybe the 780 or the 757 used to fly, so like Transcon from Newark to San Francisco, where you know airlines are trying to replace it with the 737-900 to maximize or to get as close to the passenger count as the 757 as possible, but have the newer aircraft. But you know, there's just uh, the 737 and the 757 are just way too different of a market to replace one with the other, and so I think the 787 does in part sort of bridge the gap between the two. But um, it also has the potential to fill um, other markets as well. So it's. I think we're just going to have to wait and see to see um, what airlines really end up using it for, and uh, you know if these predictions end up coming true. Yeah, that's all valid points right there. Because I know I recently flew from O'Hare to LAX, and it's normally a seven five route, but in, apparently this month or this season they were using a lot of seven thirty seven nine hundreds. Now, even though they may be close in passenger count, there's still that that kind of stigma where, you know, you want to be on a seven five just because the name makes it sound like a bigger or better plane than it than it is compared to a seven thirty seven nine hundred. I mean, that could be all you just know false accusations and stuff and whatnot on that, but it just kind of gives off that presence. You know, hey, I'm a better plane. I'm a bigger plane just because the word seven fifty seven or letters or numbers and whatever you want to call it. So. You know, to see a 787 going transcon, I think that would that in itself would 
uh, attract a lot of customers. But you know, as you said, only time will tell, and we'll see what the uh, the future and the coming months are of the 787-10. All right. So this next article comes to us from FlyingMagazine.com, where Bombardier is launching a new uh, variant of their very popular um, CRJ series called the CRJ 550. Now, this new CRJ airplane is um, supposed to be a replacement for the 50-seat um, CRJ 7, uh, 700 and 200 variants, I believe. Uh, and uh, earlier this year, we saw uh, Bombardier sell off its um, C-Series regional jetliner program to Airbus. And um, originally, they were planning on selling off the CRJ as well. However, they decided to keep it despite all of their financial difficulties. And um, I guess uh, of the continuation now of the CRJ family comes this new CRJ 550. And so um, it does have the same type certificate as the CRJ 700. So I guess that's what's going to be meant to replace. And um, United is the launch customer for this. They ordered 50 of them. Uh, 25 are going to be delivered this year by summer 2019. And then the uh, next 25 will be delivered by summer of 2020. And um, they're going to be configuring it with uh, in-flight Wi-Fi, uh, self-serve beverage and snack station. And um, I think they're going to be trying out a new uh, cl cabin class layout too. Uh, United says they want to put uh, 10 first-class seats in, 20 economy plus seats, and 20 uh, regular economy seats. And um, this new CRJ550 is also going to be featuring more legroom per passenger than uh, any other 50-seat aircraft flown by U.S. carriers. So it largely sounds like uh, Bombardier is releasing this new 550 to replace um, the aging CRJ 200s, the 700s, and possibly even the 900s. And uh, this is an issue we've talked about in the past on the show where, um, you know, some of the most uncomfortable flights to take are uh, the ones where you have to get on the smaller, like ERJ 145s and CRJ 200s. Uh, now, the 700 and the 900 are a little bit better. However, um, I think just overall, um, this is going to be a really, if Bombardier can pull this off, where uh, it's a lot more comfortable of a flight, I think they're gonna hit a really they're gonna hit a gold mine with this airplane because this like like I said this is an issue we've talked about in the past where uh, people are starting to want more comfortable flights and more comfortable airplanes for the smaller regional flights from uh, all these small little towns to major hubs like Chicago and uh, New York and Los Angeles. So uh, I think if you know both United and Bombardier can uh configure their airplanes so that this is going to be really comfortable for passengers i think they're going to hit a home run with this airplane yeah okay so i'm going to have to disagree with that um because as we've talked about before the comfortability issue with the tiny little erj 145s and the death chariot also known as the crj 200 um why on earth and this is just my opinion um i'm not quoting anybody on this so take it with a grain of salt but why on earth would you buy another crj line plane when you can get an embraer 175 an embraer 190 the 220 as i'll be talking about later just launched into service with delta you could get an a220 all of these are taller maybe a little bit wider 
they've already proven to become more comfortable than the CRJ lines that are currently out there. So I don't know why on earth you would even consider buying something that's no going to be no bigger than a 900, a CRJ 900 at most. It's probably going to be most likely like a CRJ 700. So, and I know if I'm on a CRJ 700, I'd rather be on an E170. So I don't think it's a good move for United, but I don't know. It, it, do you have, I, I don't, Matt, do you have any other insight onto this? <laughs> because I, I really, I'm at a loss. Um, I, I don't know a lot about this aircraft. Um, I guess mostly just the reason why I'm so optimistic about it is because um, this is something that needs to be improved on is, um, you know, these smaller CRJs on like the, uh, the half hour to hour routes where they're just cramming these people into this very tiny airplane. You know, when I stand up, I'm six foot four. And when I stand up, uh, I have to d- completely duck my head to walk inside the ERJ and the ERJ 145 that is in the CRJ 200 and 700. And so, um, you know, I'm just really optimistic that if, uh, Bombardier and United stick to the word and actually make this a comfortable airplane, I think, um, it'll be good for them in replacing their smaller, uh, CRJ 200s and ERJ 145s. And here's the thing. Um, I, I would, uh, I do get where you're coming from Jay in that, um, I would like to see, these routes be replaced by bigger aircraft like uh, 170s, 175s, 190s, and even the A220. However, what I think United is planning on doing with this is I think they're going to use this on their like the smallest routes they have. So like the smaller uh, passenger markets, the small, the smallest uh, passenger route capacity. In that they're going to use it on the flights where it's just people going to really obscure places not a lot of people are going at a time so they're probably just going to use this airplane as like a once or twice daily flight to all these really small locations where uh maybe something as big as an a220 or a 175 or a 190 would not fill up every single time when they fly to these really small places yeah okay so i'll add this caveat i think it's a bad idea unless it is truly a comfortable airplane as compared to an ERJ-145 or CRJ-200. And you're, you're right in that it's probably, if, it's a good move if they're going to be flying it from like O'Hare to Appleton, Wisconsin. Okay, so that would be a good route for it. If they can fill that thing up and it's comfortable, then good on them, that's a good move. But if they're going to be flying it from like O'Hare to, I don't know, Indianapolis, Detroit, Kansas City, where they'll probably fill up those routes... Uh, I think it's a bad move because they could probably fill up an E-170 as well, and those are probably just a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what I was getting at. Is like, um, I know from firsthand experience because I live in Grand Forks, North Dakota, so um, you know we we don't get anything bigger than a CRJ-700 here unless a Legion is flying. It's like once a week A-318 out of here, which is something that does not need to be talked about right now we could do a whole episode about that but um i think um if they do correctly utilize these airplanes on the very small um passenger like on the very small market routes where um you know not a lot of people are flying to these locations i think they could really hit a home run with this airplane because i i I think it's important to make the distinction between these certain types of um regional routes where if you're going from somewhere to like 
Chicago to Cincinnati or Kansas City, like you said, yeah, that's going to require a little bit bigger of a regional airplane. But like you said, if we're going from Chicago to somewhere like Appleton, Wisconsin, or Fargo, North Dakota, I don't think there's that large of a passenger market to be flying these larger ERJ, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, ERJ 140, uh, 175s uh, and 195s and A220s. So I think if United can correctly implement them on the smaller passenger routes, then um, I think they'll they'll really be successful with them. Yeah, and I'll just add again that they'll be really successful if they're comfortable. If they're just as cramped and annoying as a CRJ 200 and 145, I think it's just a huge waste of money. Because then at that point, why not just keep the yeah. 145 and save your money? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree. Um, I really hope that um, United uh, configures them to be as comfortable as possible. And it, it does look optimistic in that they're adding 10 first-class seats, which I know for a fact on Delta's um, CRJ200s, they only have, I think it's like three or four... Um, I don't I don't know how Delta um, names their class configurations, but they have um, maybe three or four of the next step up from regular economy seats in their CRJ 200s. So it sounds like compared to some of what the airlines already have configured, United's going to be um, offering a lot more uh, premium cabin seating with 10 first class seats, 20 economy plus, and 20 regular economy seats. Yeah, and I recently read an article. Yeah, yeah, this article I read recently, um, it kind of mentioned that United isn't catering anymore to the to economy, regular economy folk. They're they're catering to economy plus and first class and slash Polaris, and so that would kind of align with what you're saying here. Is because if they've got a little more uh, elevated class uh, seats in these these new planes. Um, they were kind of confirmed that hey, they're focusing on the comfort, but n- the comfort of the you know economy plus slash first class, and so maybe just maybe this plan will be a little more economical and fr- uh, comfort friendly for all the passengers. Yeah, and it's important to note here that um, you know this uh, it, these CRJ five fifties are going to take a while to come out. We're gonna it's going to be a while before we actually see them in action and see pictures of uh, the cabin layout and if it actually is going to be a comfortable airplane. So I think, you know, we just got to let time tell as to whether uh, this is going to be an actual comfortable airplane to fly or if it's just going to be like another, uh, you know, regular CRJ 200 or 700 with a fancy new name or something like that. All right. So next up on the show, we have a segment where we were able to interview our good friend, Ryan Weber. Now, uh, Ryan has a, an interesting story that we thought we'd like to share on the show. And so uh, we did an interview with him a couple weeks ago. And so here's that interview. All right. So for our next segment, we have a very special guest with here, a good friend of the show, Ryan Weber, who is currently a flight student from Wisconsin. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get right into it here, Ryan. Um, basically, we'll just be talking about your flight, um, your flight school experience with uh, your hearing aids and you know your cochlear implants. So I'll just get right into it here. So um, when did you want to, or when did you know that you wanted to pursue aviation as um, either a hobby or a career? I would say when I was about four years old, I went to Orlando, Florida, 
for my first trip, and I remember, you know, getting on the aircraft, and just how unique, I shouldn't say unique, but how cool the experience was to actually mm-hmm. be able to get up to 30,000 feet and get somewhere so quick. It was just grown on me since then. Yeah, I, I remember I had a similar experience where, you know, like my my first time on an airplane, it, it's really a cool experience if it's the, if it's the first time that you're on it, right? You're in this metal tube 30,000 plus feet in the air and you're going 500 miles an hour and you think this is a marveling engineer exactly. or, or an engineering and marvel. So, um, <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, when did you start flight school? I started flight school senior year, which was in 2016, uh, around the spring semester, uh, through an aviation school called Pilot Smith. And okay. they, you know, definitely were willing to help me understand, you know, what was required for me. What do I need to do in order to achieve my goals as a pilot in the future? That's really cool. So, like, was this at your local airport and how big was the flight school? It was like, were there a lot of people in your class? Were there a lot of instructors? So, the way it was, the flight school was actually just bought by a new individual. And uh, pretty much what they did was... They were just starting up. They were trying to get it going. So, uh, first of all, we started off as just doing one-on-one with the flight instructor, doing, you know, practice takeoffs and landings, going mm-hmm. into the pattern, then going out to the practice area, doing, you know, stalls, all of the S-turns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they offered a ground school class, which was, I would say, about three to four months into it. Mm-hmm. And after that, that's where you can sign up for that. And then I paid so this was like a private company that was based at the airport yes yes it's only local in the area of wisconsin okay and it was just you know by this individual who was from out of state loved flying wanted to you know pursue his dream of owning a flight school and he found one and did it mm-hmm. that's really cool so like you've always sort of uh since a very early age you've been into it right but um, how did, uh, when you got, because I know you had one of your cochlear implants when you were really little, and then you um, sort of recently got the second one, couple, uh, maybe yeah. about five years ago, is it? Uh, when I was about 16 or 17. Yeah, okay. So let me ask you this. Um, how did your hearing impediment, like getting your cochlear implants, affect your decision to either go to or not go to flight school? Well, pretty much what happened was when you have cochlear implants, obviously the FAA's got more you know, restrictions, regulations and stuff. So I decided I would like to work for an airline in the future and pursue my uh, my aviation passion through being a private pilot, just do it for fun and stuff. Um, With the cochlear implant, obviously you can attain a medical degree. You could try to, you know, go up higher if you want, but Mm -hmm. you have to, you know, push the FAA into Yeah. So then, like, did you have any issues with your medical and getting your uh, class three? No, no, no. Um, pretty much what happened was you go to the medical examiner, do the routine exam and stuff. Uh, you get your class three, I don't want to say quick, but, you know, pretty, mm-hmm. you know, in a good process. Yeah. Um, after that, you know, when you go to the flight school and stuff, you give them, you know, you're saying you, you got approved for class three medical and stuff. I decided to experiment with different headsets. Okay. Because each headset, you know, has obviously different yeah. sound quality. You got you to gotta figure out what works for you and your uh, your hearing aids, if they fit over the hearing aids and your cochlear implants, Exactly, right? yes, yeah. yes. So um, what I did was uh, my flight instructor at the time, he was very generous to let me try one of 
his wife's headset. Mm-hmm. And those were, I think, Sierra's at the time. So, um, okay. And, uh, Lightspeed Sierra's. So what was, you know, I tried them. I liked it because, you know, it was good quality. I could understand what the controllers were saying and stuff. I could understand what the flight instructor was telling me to do when I was in flight. Okay. And, uh, after that, I decided to actually purchase my own set from Lightspeed, and I love them to this day. Yet it works great. Yeah, that's cool. I heard Lightspeed's a really good brand. I personally own a pair of um, A20s, but I hear they're super comparable, and there's really, um, you know, there's really benefits, and uh, you're, you'll have a, a good experience with either headset. It's not like you're really losing out on much buying one over the other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I tried the A320s, and I tried the Lightspeed. Sierras. Um, honestly, I like both of them, but mm-hmm. I just felt like the Sierras were better sound quality to uh-huh. me, so that's why I decided to purchase. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it's you know, there uh, there's all these different people who try these on, and everyone has you know personalized hearing and all that. So you know, the A20s might work best for me, but it's not going to work best for the next person because you know it's just a little bit different for every person. So that's you know that that's good that you found the pair that works best for you and your um, all of your uh, extracurriculars around your ears. Um, all right, so um, you know, so you got into flight school for a little bit. You know, um, you're you're going through the ground school, right? You're just starting the training. Was there anything that you were like really surprised by? Um, so when you actually listen to live ATC, the sound quality isn't the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure why it might be due to the internet and something like that, but when you're actually flying, the ATC quality is so much better. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of shocked how it was so much clearer, mm-hmm. and I could understand the controllers and read back with no problem. Okay. Yeah. It was um. So what about um specifically like with your hearing? Like, did you think you would have a certain problem, or do you think that something certain would be extra hard compared to someone that didn't have hearing aids? But it actually ended up being a different experience. Um, I didn't really, you know, think there was going to be an issue with it because there's individuals who have their pilot's license and they're completely deaf. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing is, if they're completely deaf, they actually, I believe, they can't actually fly into airports to have ATC. They can only go into airports that don't require ATC. So, like non-towered airports. Yeah. So pretty much. Yeah, so does that mean they also have to stay at a certain airspace, like Bravo, yeah. Charlie so they're airspace? More res- they're more restricted to where they can fly. Okay. Where and that also means the, so they can't do IFR flight then, either? No, 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 no. They can't even do VFR, you know, with ATC. Okay. So it has to be strictly VFR without ATC in certain airspace? To my knowledge, yes. Okay. And uh, for me, I mean, I thought I was going to have to do that, but then when I found out I could, you know, fly with the medical tree and going to airports that have air traffic controllers, mm-hmm. it made it so much more better. Okay. Because I could, you know, go to, you know, Green Bay, I could go to Oshkosh, I could go to Milwaukee, you know, just, mm-hmm. it, I wasn't restricted. Okay. So it gave me the freedom to, you know, go wherever I wish. Okay. Yeah, so speaking of all these restrictions, um, did you feel like at all at any point that you were at some sort of a disadvantage compared to other students, or did you feel like it was a pretty even, even, uh, playing field um when i tried to okay so originally i tried to get my class one medical and the medical examiner said i have to contact the faa to see if you're actually eligible for it okay because 
you know, you obviously have cochlear implants, mm-hmm. which I was like, okay. okay. And he pretty much did this one test where he had me face away from him, about 10 or 20 feet away. Okay. And I would be facing the wall. He would be behind me saying, Papa, golf, one, two. Uh-huh. And I actually got every single word he said right. Okay. And he said, honestly, in my professional opinion, I don't think you have any problem and you shouldn't have any issue with it. Okay. But when he contacted the FAA, that's where it got to be a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, he should probably, no, he's going to get a class three. Okay. Now, there was a captain from a certain airline who was the 757 and the 767. He told me to try this medical examiner. And when he told me to try them, I was like, okay, I'll consider it. But the only thing is I have the fear of is, okay, I might get a class one medical at this Mm -hmm. one. But when I go back for my checkup, this medical examiner, if he's no longer doing it, I'm going to get a different one. Mm -hmm. And they might deny it. Okay. So I felt like I don't want to invest all this money Mm -hmm. and time into it. So that's why I kind of changed my career paths to working for airline. I see. But pursuing my passion in private, mm-hmm. you know, aviation. So you still plan on getting your license then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. See, I had a uh, sort of similar experience in where when I went in for my class one, um, you know, I have asthma. So they had to do some extra testing, make sure that my asthma wasn't affecting my breathing and that it wouldn't be, um, you know, an issue in flight in case anything happened. So um, the air medical examiner, gave her professional opinion to the FAA saying like this his asthma is not an issue like I believe in my professional opinion that um, he can get this class one without any issue but the FAA came back and said no we need written we need it written in um, in ink and documented that he hasn't had an asthma attack in this many years in this many months so I had to go back and sign and um, mail directly to the FAA headquarters in Oklahoma a written document saying I have not had an um, an asthma attack in this many years, and I I even had to get my doctor to sign it. Mm-hmm. So they really, I mean, it is a government entity, so they do make you jump through all these hoops exactly. if you do have um, a disease or a hearing impediment, some something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So I definitely understand where you're coming from on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a buddy that's from Texas, and this individual here, they actually had the same issue, but it was a different medical reason Mm -hmm. well the FAA you know obviously is making them do all these hoops and stuff yeah Uh, to my latest knowledge this individual here was able to pursue their passion for commercial aviation Uh which was you know obviously going to be a class one medical yeah so that's a good thing Mm -hmm. no I mean that is a bummer he had to jump through all these hoops for this uh huh all right, so we kind of we've gone over a little bit of the restrictions so far. Um, now I kind of want to get into some of the stuff about like um, how far um, you personally plan on going into the aviation industry, where you want to see yourself end up in ten to twenty years, and then what you would recommend for someone else who also has hearing aids or cochlear implants if they should pursue getting a job in the airlines and trying to be captain with the airlines, or if they should probably pursue the um, the corporate side. I just want to get your opinion on that. Okay, all right, so let's start off as, you know, if they should try to become a pilot or just try to get on, like, the 
airline, you know, ground management, corporate mm-hmm. side, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, I would say it actually depends on each case. Okay. Because each individual is, you know, unique in their own way. They have their mm-hmm. own medical reasons, disadvantages, you know, advantages. So from that, I would say, you know, see what works best for you. Okay. Second part to the question would be is, um, I actually would like to pursue to trying to get my IFR to multi-engine rating. Okay. As, you know, a private pilot. Now, if I'm commercial or anything. So you want your multi-engine uh, rating with an IFR rating as well? Correct, yes. Okay. And so, is that going to be on uh, your um, your private license? Are you going to get those ratings for your private? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say I'm going to get them right away, right after I get my private pilot's license. Uh-huh. I'm pretty close to ending, you know, my private pilot's training and mm-hmm. going on to my check ride and stuff. Um, I would like to probably just do VFR for a few years, just try to get used to flying the aircraft on my own. Uh-huh. Obviously, I mean, it's going to be a huge difference when you don't yeah. have an instructor there. Yep. And obviously, as a new pilot, it's better to fly with clear, uh, clear weather. Mm-hmm. And from that, then as you build experience and stuff, I would like to try to challenge myself and do IFR. Okay. And yeah. after that, obviously, when I get used to flying in more harsh conditions. As yeah, like you know, IMC conditions. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then after that, obviously, I'll continue to get my multi-engine rating. No. Okay. I'm not saying I'm going to fly multi-engine all the time. Mm-hmm. It might just vary depending on where I want to go. Is it practical to fly an aircraft that's multi-engine versus just doing a single mm-hmm. engine? Yeah, it's always nice to be able to have the option. Yeah, so that's yeah. what I would like to factor into okay. consideration. Okay, cool. And so that begs the question, um, are you currently comfortable, like, you know, like you said, um, it might be harder or there might be restrictions in place with pe- for people with cochlear implants or hearing aids for talking to ATC or maybe um, uh, flying IFR. So are you personally comfortable with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, obviously my instructors have recommended, you know, trying to do live ATC net. Uh-huh. Uh, after a while, I was like, you know, honestly, it's just not working for me. It just okay. doesn't sound like the ATC I experienced when I was flying. Mm-hmm. And that's when they said, I mean, you're right. It's over the internet. It's not going to be the quality you yeah. receive over actual. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't sound the same as in the plane as if you were pulling it up through a browser. Exactly. Yeah. After, I want to say about 10 hours of flying, I started to get the hang of, you know, the procedure and how to contact the ATC and what was expected. Mm-hmm. So you're actually ahead of the controller before they want you to do something. You kind of just get into the pattern or the pattern of what they yeah. expect from you. So um, I started off, you know, contacting ground for clearance and stuff. Okay. And after that, you know, obviously I would do the readback, get into the hang of that, you know, do the readback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously they'd say, you know, you're good to go, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then I would uh, go over to tower after taxiing and stuff. Yeah. Had no problem with that. Uh, when I got to departure, that was kind of a a unique experience because mm-hmm. obviously you're doing a lot of things at once. You know, you're putting your flaps up. If you yeah. Have the flaps down, depending on yeah, you got to run through the, all the whole after takeoff yeah, checklist yeah. and the climb checklist, mm-hmm. all that. So that's why, you know, you got to kind of just get used to what they expect from you. Okay. So, you know, for example, you'd be like, 
Green Bay departure, you know, blah, 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 whatever your call sign would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're passing 1,200 for 3,000 going to the practice area. Yeah. And obviously they would be back, you know, tell you to proceed on course or they would tell you to maintain heading depending on if there's mm-hmm. traffic or not in the area. So after that, I you know, got used to that. Um, from that point forward, I would say it got easier and easier because you just get used yeah. to what ATC for sure expects from you and the common phrases. They mm-hmm. say. Yeah, like it's it's like a um, a muscle memory thing where like mm-hmm. you just get used to hearing uh, the standard readback and you come to expect what the controller is going to say, so it's easier yeah. for you to understand it. Exactly, and uh, you know as you do that, it just gets easier and easier, and mm-hmm. to the point where you're actually probably ahead of the controller. Okay. Just almost like you know what they're going to probably say. Sometimes they'll change it up because, you know, there might be an aircraft on final. Mm-hmm. But you got a pretty good idea of what they're going to you know, want you to do. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So since you are comfortable with ATC, you're comfortable flying, um, you know, with IFR flights, you know, uh, filing a flight plan and all that. Uh, would you ever maybe consider sometime in the future, like maybe five to ten years from now, going for like your tailwheel endorsement or maybe a high altitude endorsement, something like that, or maybe even your seaplane? Um, I would probably consider the high altitude endorsement over the rest of them just because I don't have the interest of flying a seaplane in Mm -hmm. water. I just don't like the idea of it. Okay. I feel like a plane should land on land. (laughs) Okay. It's true. I mean. That's understandable. That's a very understandable uh, Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, yeah. there's so many different factors. You've got more possibilities of birds being on the, you know, the area of water, such mm-hmm. as a lake, you know, wherever, wherever you decide to land. Okay, yeah. And then, obviously, there's boulders and stuff. Yeah. I just don't like having those different variables. Okay. I'd rather know there's an air traffic controller mm-hmm. always watching out for you. It just makes it feel safer. Uh-huh. And, obviously, that's what makes aviation probably one of the safest ways to travel. Okay. It's because you got air traffic controllers, pilots that need to go through all these, you know, different hoops mm-hmm. to attain a certain medical rating and their pilot ratings. Yeah, and if you do go for your high altitude endorsement, then that does mean that that that's a really easy avenue to get into, like mountain flying, maybe even bush flying. Exactly. You could um, go to Alaska and do a lot of that up there, and the scenery up there is amazing. That's some of the best flying I've heard from bush pilots, and. Uh, you know, that is a lucrative job if you ever think about it. Oh, yeah. I would definitely, you know, consider trying to fly up in Alaska just to see how the experience Or it doesn't even have to be that far. It could be like you could do it in the Rockies or, uh, you know, the Appalachians. Well, yeah, um, exactly. Mountain flying in general. Um, the, the high altitude endorsement is just a really good intro into mountain flying. Exactly. And it couples really well with each other. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, when you think of it, uh, obviously, when you're flying at 700 AGL to... I don't know. I mean, when you're in the mountains and stuff, you know, they can vary depending on different areas where you are located. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's actually a unique experience because you actually get to see different scenery. Mm-hmm. But obviously with different experiences like that come different risk. Yeah. Example, yeah, so you have to be up for the challenge then. Exactly. Uh, when you're at a higher altitude, you have to keep your, you know, if you're flying like a Cessna a certain type of proper aircraft where you have mm-hmm. to use um, your mixture. You actually have to make sure you actually have the mixture at the right levels. Yeah, because it's, it's different from then if you're flying at sea level versus if you're taking off 
at 4,000 feet. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to actually factor all that in. And then, you know, also with that, like, the pilot has to be really good at identifying density altitude, mm-hmm. right? And uh, different, uh, telling the difference between what the AGL and the MSL is. Because, mm-hmm. like, at the airport, if you're at, let's say, like, Telluride, Colorado, that's, uh, what, about, like, 4,000 feet above the ground, is it? I'm not sure, maybe 7,000. It might be around there. I can't tell you. Whatever it is, like, you got to make sure, like, that's, you know, altimeters and all that are really important with that. So you got to make sure you're at the right altitude and you got to factor in the density altitude for takeoff and landing configurations with your weight. So it really, it really requires um, a sharpened skill set to be a high altitude flyer because like you said there's a lot more risk there's a lot more risk that's involved with it oh yeah definitely i mean even for example if you take off and you have something go wrong you yeah gotta factor what's around you yeah like where if you're flying in the midwest most of it it's pretty flat major yeah. concerns would be is cell phone towers power poles and forest yeah. Or if you're out in Colorado flying in the mountains, you got to worry about the forest, the mountains, and but the mountains, there's different elevations. Yep. So you got to really. More and if it's it. during winter and there's snow, you got to factor in the case that you might see a clear place to land, mm-hmm. but there might be a lot of snow in it, so there might it might be super rocky, and exactly. you could flip the airplane and crash. Exactly. You got to really consider the variables of you know when you're obviously flying in the mountains with the snow because you might be at 6,000, mm-hmm. but the mountains might be at 4,000. Yeah. Well, oh, it looks like it's just covered with some snow. Well, you don't realize how steep the snow is until you actually get down. Yep. And that's where you got to be careful mm-hmm. because that's where it can actually be very bumpy. It can be, you know, you could be on a slope and you not realize it because the snow practically just blinds you. Mm-hmm. All right, so just to get a little bit more um back into uh the airline flying i know you said um it is possible to go for your first class medical is that correct yes if i pursue trying to get it it is a possibility Mm -hmm. it's not guaranteed always okay i just um i I have a couple more questions just about the restrictions so um you say it is possible right to get your first class so i just want to know um it, I, I want to know your opinion on if it's worth, like, for someone with hearing aids to go all the way to um, the airline specifically, like, going to, um, you know, a mainline airline, like, uh, or one of the, the legacy airlines, like United, Delta, or American, and um, if, you know, just if it's worth it in general. Um, that's a really good question. Honestly, it really depends on the individual and how dedicated they are to wanted to pursue it, jump through those hoops that's thrown at them. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I would love to be a you know pilot for one of the legacy airlines. But I don't like the fear of having your medical taken away possibility. Okay. And investing all the time and the money in knowing you're not going to be able to fly commercial anymore. Okay. Because I know, um, at least when I got my first class medical, there was a restriction on there saying, you know, I did have asthma and I have to carry inhalers on me. Yeah. So would there, if someone in your position were to get a first class medical, would they have a similar restriction on there where they would have to like have extra batteries for their hearing aids maybe or something of that nature? Do you well, think? it's common sense to the individual because you get into the routine, for example, if you have hearing aids, you're going to understand your hearing aids are going to probably die within this time period because... Mm-hmm. 
for example, let's just say this battery lasts three days. Well, if you change it on a Tuesday, you would expect it probably to die on a Friday, Saturday, depending on how late you stay up and how long you have the device itself on. Same okay. with the cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. So you've got to kind of consider always carrying just extra batteries in your wallet, your flight bag, whatever. Okay. Now, if that would happen, obviously, if you're flying commercial, you got a first officer. Yeah. If you're the captain, no, vice versa. Mm -hmm. Same if you're flying with a friend or whatever. Well, if you have two hearing aids, well, you're, you shouldn't have a problem, depending on the individual. Okay. So, you would be able to hear with your other ear. Okay. Now, if both go out due to some malfunction, battery problems, if you didn't burn batteries, well, that's going to be a problem. And that's where, you know, that could get more risky because then there's a possibility that FAO will want to get back involved with, you know, are you able to attain that medical three or, you know, whatever medical quest you want mm -hmm. to hold. Because, you know, they might consider that a risk or... You know, the controllers, you know, when you're flying, you know, the controllers can report you for, you know, some issues. Yeah. The pilots can report the controllers. So, if anybody wanted to really do anything, it could happen. And mm -hmm. the FAA, obviously, would get the report and want to check in on that. All right. Cool. All right. So, there you have it. Uh, you heard firsthand from Mr. Ryan Weber. Uh, it is possible to be a successful airline pilot or basically anyone with hearing aids or cochlear implants you can there's still potential for you to move up in the aviation industry uh, as long as you're able to work through it so unfortunately that's all the time i have for you and that's all i have so um before we go if you want to plug your social media tell the people where to find you nope all right okay so um all right thank you for coming on the show and we'll move on to the next segment all right and it's time for the screw up of the week and uh, this is something that really bugs me, and it's not going to be a roast on a single airline. You're welcome, Southwest. It's not just about you. You're actually probably not going to be talked about this time, because unlike these other airlines, you don't really have fair classes. So so I'm talking about you, Delta, United, and American. Um, I, I do love you all in your own ways, but you guys need to correct what I'm about to talk about here. So as you know, we've got... You used to have your basic fare classes. First class, business class, economy. Okay, and then somewhere along the lines, it got the line between business class and economy plus kind of got, or comfort plus, depending on the airline you're in, uh, kind of got blurred. So now it's kind of the same thing, kind of not. So nowadays when you say business class, some people think you're talking about first class. Some people think you're talking about economy plus or whatnot. So that kind of got blurred. But the kind of one steady and constant in all of this was economy. If you were in coach, you were in coach. It didn't matter where in coach you were or what you were. You just got the standard coach seat. It didn't matter. When you said, I'm flying economy coach, people knew what you were talking about. That's not the case anymore, sadly, because in order to make a quick nickel, these airlines have decided recently to go economy, economy plus, uh, and then or whatever, comfort plus, you want to talk about it. And, you know, that, that segmented the economy even more because that took people, more people who were willing to buy a ticket in economy, and now they, they were not going to buy one because the price just went up by 50 to to $100, depending on your economy plus seat if you're flying United. And so now that took away a potential seats for 
uh, paying customers. So now if the, those four, 30 to 40, 20 to 40 seats are gone, where are those potential customers going to go? Now they're going to go to another airline because all the regular economy seats are taken and they have to buy economy plus or first class, which they don't want to do. So that is something that's really, really kind of annoying. And then they, they charge you almost as much as you would pay to pay first class. So if you're going to buy economy plus at this point, why not just pay an extra $150, $200 and go first class? Uh, that, that was kind of stupid in, in my opinion on behalf of the airlines to segment their stuff that way. But and then it gets worse. Recently, you, you kind of they kind of just they were really sneaky and snuck up on us with it. And they, I don't remember ever seeing an announcement about it. There's probably it was there, but they didn't publicize it enough because they didn't want people to know. They just kind of wanted it to be bam. One day you wake up and it's there. Um, it's this whole thing about preferred seating. And I, I I did a double take when I first saw this on I was booking a flight on Delta somewhere, and. I thought it was an economy plus seat because the seat color was different. So I clicked it and I was about to buy it, but then I realized it just said preferred economy. I'm like, what is this? So I did some research and I found out you were not getting any benefits of economy plus or comfort plus. You're not getting the free uh, beverages, so alcoholic beverages are free. You're not getting any of that. You're not getting any extra legroom. The only perk you're getting with preferred economy is it's closer to the front. That's literally the only perk they, they state. So, and then they're charging you ranging from $9, depending on your route, to like $60, $70. just to sit closer to the front. That's insane. People have expressed their opinions about, always like, I like to sit closer to the front. And the airlines obviously have heard that so much that they've actually done something about it and capitalized off of it. And like, yeah, if you want to sit closer to the front, guess what? You're paying up to $70, $80 for this seat, which is absolutely bogus in my opinion. Um, it's no, and in these seats, the exact same as the ones in regular economy, main cabin, whatever you want to call it, the exact same. You're just only the perk you're paying seventy dollars for is to sit ten rows up closer to the front. And you know what? It's going to take you five, maybe max five minutes later to get off the plane if you're ten rows back. So you're for basically you're paying seventy dollars to get off the plane five minutes earlier, which is insane in my opinion. And I think it's really stupid on behalf of the airlines to even. Dig into people's wallets like that even more, even after airfare is outrageous these days, to say, you know what, if you want to sit closer to the front, you're paying 70 extra dollars. And, you know, I never thought I'd find the day where I'd say this, but good on you, Southwest, for not doing that to people. Yes, you can buy the early bird and get on first, but they're not charging you to sit closer to the front. Once you get on, you can sit wherever you want. If the row one is open and nobody who has a disability is in need of that seat, you can have it if you're the last person on the plane. They're not charging you this extra nonsense. So... This whole, and then they do it in a way that's kind of very sly and sneaky, and that's another thing that kind of rubs me wrong is that you know they don't announce it. They're like, we're just going to implement this into our booking systems. So when you go to select seats, it'll be there, and we'll see how many people really catch it, how many people really don't, and see how many people accidentally buy it, not realizing what they're buying. And that in itself is kind of wrong. Trying to say maybe some people accidentally buy it, thinking it's an economy plus or preferred seat when it's really not. Uh, and that's kind of that kind of rubs you the wrong way. So there's a lot of things I don't like about it, you know, stemming from the business model to the kind of just the underhanded way they went about it. And then they kind of just, they're, the greed, it's like you already make so much off of the passengers. Why charge an extra 9 to $70 just to sit closer to the front? But, you know, that's just my opinion on it. I don't know. Matt might have a completely different view on it. Yeah. Um, I just got to say, I really don't. And let me preface this by saying um, I, I'd be, 
completely happy to have someone who knows more about this explain to me exactly why this is beneficial um, for the airline itself or even for passengers when booking on these airlines. But since I don't know a lot about this and I don't have someone to explain it to me, just from looking at this report, I really just cannot for the life of me understand why um, these airlines are doing this besides just bulking up their revenue streams. Like, like you said, we're not getting any extra amenities when choosing a preferred economy seat other than the fact that, you know, you just get, it's basically just regular economy with a steeper price. So I think, you know, like all they're doing is just renaming economy to preferred economy and then keeping basic economy and economy plus. So basically I think what this is forcing passengers to do is like really consider if they want to pay the extra amount of money to be able to choose a window or aisle seat because obviously no one wants the middle seat and then forcing those passengers that can't afford to pay more for a regular economy seat to choose the basic economy seat and have to pay for any checked bags only allowed to bring on one carry-on and probably have to get end up with a middle seat so i just i can't for the life of me figure out why airlines will be doing this other than to just nickel and dime the hell out of passengers yeah and i love you delta but um but you go to their website and you go to select your seats when you hover over the little seat preferred seat it says you know how you go to a comfort plus and it says enjoy complimentary beverages and whatnot when you hover over preferred seat all it says is enjoy a economy seat closer to the front now that's kind of stupid, in my opinion. Who's gonna pay? If you're gonna pay seventy dollars for it, and a first class upgrade's two hundred, why not just go spend an extra one thirty for first class at that point? If you're willing to shell out an extra seventy just to sit closer to the front, and so it's it's insane now that you know the class, the fair class used to be three max three. Now you've got first class, business class. If you some planes have that, some don't. Um, economy plus slash comfort plus slash whatever your airline of choice calls it economy preferred actually no preferred economy main cabin main economy and then basic well that's like seven fare classes at least seven you gone from three to seven and so basically eventually there's not going to be a fare for the average person who just wants to say i'll take whatever it is i don't have to pay for eventually it's just everything's going to have a surcharge on it which is stupid. Like, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. So they're just nickeling, diming everybody left and right. And it, it's, it's, at some point, people need to say, we're not going to be paying that. And we're not going to fly you guys if you keep charging us like that. And maybe it'll stop. All right. So our next segment comes to us from flightglobal.com. Um, and it's about the now insolvent Germania airline that was based in Germany. Uh, this is the latest European airline to, uh, declared bankruptcy after most recently um believe air berlin did and uh, a couple other of the smaller ones uh back in 2016 2015 and um i think the biggest thing to take away from this is um you know now that all these uh smaller airlines are um starting to become bankrupt in europe i think it's starting to expose uh an issue in um in europe in that um all these smaller airlines, uh, when they see opportunities to um, fill vacant space and expand uh, too much of the time, they do it too quickly in the sense that they just can't keep up with their growth. You know, like they order too many airplanes at a time or they uh, they uh, 
order too many slots at an airport or something like that and they just their cash flow can't keep up with the demand um for uh liquid assets and uh for paying off these uh new airplanes because i believe at the time when they did go um bankrupt they had a couple of uh a321 neos on order and they did disclose that um yeah they had 25 uh airbus a3 neos on order which it disclosed that they were um, intended to completely replace their fleet of Boeing 737s. So that is a large, for such a small airline as Germania was, it's that, that's a large investment to make to completely replace your fleet of airplanes. And um, really where this the problem started for Germania was when um, Air Berlin collapsed back in 2017. Uh, Germania basically just... Uh, tried to expand into all of the vacant space that Air Berlin left and just did it too quickly and was not able to keep up with uh, the demand and wasn't able to get the cash flow in order to um, meet the demand of their expansion. Yeah, and that's kind of a big issue is the cash flow thing. It's like, I don't know who did that, like who who was making the decisions for them, but it's obviously somebody in their executive team, but like you don't ever really want to expand prematurely because that's a lot of extra expenses on your hand on your plate and then if if it doesn't work right away uh and you're not bringing in cash uh it's gonna put you out of business like extremely quickly and i guess that's what happened here yeah yeah that's exactly what happened i mean like i said this largely had to do with um air berlin's going under and that um, you know, Air Berlin had a large market. We'll take, for example, the Canary Islands. Um, and Germania tried to um, expand into that market right after Air Berlin um, went bankrupt. And, um, you know, it just proved to be uh, too much expansion at one time. Like I said, um, cash flow is super important if you plan on expanding a lot because you need to be able to have liquid asset in order to keep up with payments on these new plans like their new aircraft and all the new airports that they need to provide um staffing at and equipment and all that so i think basically what happened here is that they just overestimated um the amount of growth that they could do in a certain given time and what i estimate they probably did was um they built um and they planned off a projected growth rather than actual growth and this is a common mistake we see in a lot of airlines that do go under is that airlines will start buy in, buying uh, airplanes and making investments based on um, projected growth instead of based on growth that is actually happening because as we all know the, air, the aviation industry is a market that changes so rapidly all the time and it never stays the same and so it's really hard for airlines to um, make decisions like this to base expansion off of pro uh, projected growth because it's just so hard to predict what that projected growth is going to be and it's a lot of the time not as accurate as uh, people say it will be so i think this is what germania's main downfall was is that they're basing their expansion off of projected growth instead of actual growth and uh, the projected growth ended up being way too or uh, way bigger than what their actual growth was yeah and that's the and projected growth is also an issue in the airline industry because you know one aircraft is millions of dollars and so if you're projecting growth of your company exponentially and you go out and you buy a boatload of these aircraft at millions upon millions of dollars a piece um and then that projection isn't as accurate as you thought even by a few percentages points um 
you're out a lot of money. And obviously, saying if you're not as large as a carrier, uh, it's going to put you under real quick. And unfortunately, it happened. But uh, you know, it's kind of survival of the fittest. It's a tough industry. There, all, all the airlines are constantly going at each other. Uh, you know, with their fare classes and their aircraft offerings and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but it happens. Yeah. And something interesting to note on this is that, um, you know, Europe is one of uh, aviation's um, most volatile markets in terms of um, overexpansion, because, you know, this is uh, something that we've seen a lot throughout the most recent decade. Um, what happened to Germania? I mean, we saw this back in 2011 with um, LTU International, um, and then we saw it again in, two, in uh, 2013 with XL Airways Germany. You know, the XL Airways, I believe, still operates flights as just XL Airways, but their German, um, their German side of things uh, collapsed in 2013 due to the same issue, and then. Um, after that, Air Berlin in 2017, and I think this all had to do with just too quick, like over expansion and uh, not enough resources and cash flow to keep up with the demands of expansion. Because I think it's really hard to understand, especially if you're a newer company, that um, you know you really cannot expand as quickly as you want to. And when you do see opportunity to do that, you have to make sure that you're basing your expansion off of um, you know, resources that you either have or you know for a fact that you're going to obtain. And I highly doubt that Germania did this because, um, you know, like I said, they had 25 new A320neos on order. Those things are not cheap at all. And especially with, um, you know, an order of 25 of them, maybe Airbus did give some sort of discount. But um, for such a small airline, that is not a cheap investment at all. And Besides that, they were planning on replacing their entire fleet of Boeing 737s. And so replacing an entire fleet like that requires a lot of um, investment in that you have to invest in new uh, training for maintenance staff because they're going from an Air I'm sorry, they're going from a Boeing to an Air Airbus fleet. And so you have to invest in new training for it, new um, maintenance equipment and new maintenance manuals and all the like. So I really just think that, um, you know, we're seeing a pattern here in that these smaller airlines are just making way too many expansion plans and not realizing that um, their resources and um, actual cash flow that they have just can't keep up with all their uh, demands of expansion. Yeah, and I think an example of an airline here in the U.S. that's kind of done it well in terms of slow growth um, because they started as a very, very tiny airline um, is Southwest, and thanks to Herb Kelleher, um, if you want to learn more about him, check out our last episode. Sorry for the shameless plug. Um, so basically, you know, they started out as nothing, but they haven't expanded rapidly at all. It's like maybe they'll add a new route here and there, and then here maybe they'll buy a new aircraft or two here and there, but they're not going out and purchasing like 20 or some odd aircraft at a time and opening up five to ten brand new routes at one time. It would be every maybe once a couple quarters, maybe once a quarter, hey, a new route. And it's going to only be serviced this season, a seasonal route. And if it does well this season, maybe it'll become a full-time serviced route. And so they've kind of tested the waters uh, seasonally and kind of see how well that would do before they jumped head first into something that could potentially set them back a lot or just completely wipe them off the face of the airline industry. Yeah, that's a good example to use. And, you know, if we compare that to what Germania was doing, um, you know, we'll see that uh, Southwest... You know, like you said, they had really um, 
slow but progressed expansion um you know they took it step by step incrementally they didn't do anything too quickly like you said they didn't buy an absurd amount of planes at one time they didn't add an absurd an absurd amount of routes at one time you know they add a couple here buy a couple planes there wait a couple years in between for the cash flow to um to catch up and make sure that they can actually make payments on these new routes and airplanes but as we see with um germania uh, as soon as Air Berlin collapsed, they expanded into a ton of different markets. Like I'm reading here that they expanded into Iraq and Iran, and they even went as far as to go into the Canary Islands where Air Berlin used to be. And um, I believe a couple other um, places as well, uh, all, at, all at the relatively same time. And so we really don't see that gap that's needed in order for... Um, resources and cash flow to catch up to the expansion like southwest did but germania we just don't see that here and i think that's largely why um they ended up failing yeah and as mentioned before it's sad when they do but it happens and uh there'll be an upstart airline somewhere who will just take their place and uh you know it's got to keep your eyes out for them yep it'll be interesting to see um who picks up the slack that um all these German airlines are leaving. Maybe it'll be Lufthansa. They're big enough to where um, they could expand at a faster pace. Like I said, still in a progressional state, but at a faster pace than Germania was able to. So maybe they'll pick up some of the slack for more domestic, like inter-Europe routes. But um, we'll have to see like uh, who ends up serving those routes that Germania tried to and who picks up the slack from uh, Germania, Air Berlin, and some of the other defunct airlines. All right, and our final segment today is about a lovely little aircraft called the Airbus A220. And yes, we talked about it in previous episodes about, you know, Delta buying a lot of, a few of them, but they weren't able to get them certified and put it in service because of the whole government shutdown that lasted nearly, what, like 35 days. But on Thursday, February 7th, yes, I'm correct, Thursday, February 7th, Delta Airlines flew their first passenger flight on the new A220. Uh, it was delivered in October, and as I mentioned, the whole government shutdown thing, so it waited quite a few months, but it flew from New York's LaGuardia Airport to Boston Logan. Um, and uh, the plan right now, well, it did a few shuttles all day between New York and Boston, and then it did a few longer routes down to Dallas, actually, from New York and back. Uh, so it did a little bit longer ones there, but... Uh, Delta actually uh, ordered around uh, 90 of those A220s, uh, 15, most recent 15 being announced uh, just a month ago. Uh, and so out of a total of 884, 90 out of 884, uh, it's going to be about 10% of their fleet. That's quite a bit of airplanes. And so it means they have a uh, kind of quite a commitment to Airbus yet again. You know, they've got the A350 instead of the 787. And now they've got 10% of their fleet is now A220s, which is kind of outstanding and like kind of shocking that they would have so many of one particular type of aircraft. But I mean, it it's it's loyalty, and I, that's really respectable to a single company. Uh, so basically, you know, this A220 is going to be replacing, you know, as you earlier we talked about the the, the CRJ. Uh, it's be replacing regional routes, but not the ones that are going to obscure places like Appleton, Wisconsin. They're going to be doing the bigger places like New York to Boston, the New York-Boston shuttle, or like New York to D.C., or 
you can even go as far as Dallas. If there's not as many people booked on that flight, they could get downgraded to an A220. Uh, but things like that, maybe like San Francisco to LA, um, routes like that where it has high demand, but it's short enough to where they don't really need to use a larger aircraft because they just don't need it. The demand's high. They'll fill up a 220, but they maybe not won't fill up a 75 or 737 900. Uh, so, I don't know. I think the future's bright with this new A220 because, it, in my personal opinion, the, the MD-80 kind of does those kind of routes already. I mean, you, you fly an MD-80 from O'Hare to Atlanta. I mean, that's kind of... O'Hare's not a hub at all for Delta. Now there's Midway. And so a lot of their... Most of their flights to Atlanta are like MD-80s. Uh, and so I'm foreseeing that maybe this A220 will be replacing the MD-80 going all the way down to Atlanta, which isn't really that long. It's like an hour and a half. Um, and the, as, of course, these flights like Atlanta to Cincinnati to Orlando, I, they fly 7.5 to Orlando. Obviously, that's a popular route, so that might not change. But these shorter routes that have high demand will probably get this A220 service. Um, and if you've seen the new interior, they're absolutely outstanding. The upholstery is great you know obviously the delta's got some really nice interiors to their cabins um they got some nice first class class layouts uh they've got you know the ife uh in-flight entertainment that always sets them apart from other airlines because if you fly american united they have great stuff um themselves you just have to use your tablet um which is good um it's not i'm not gonna say it's any better or any worse but it's also nice to have the in-flight entertainment in the back of the seat so you don't have to prop up your tablet or hold it the entire time so it's got that as well built into it so not that that stands out any more than any of their other aircraft other than the md-80 because that the, a lot of those don't even have that at all most of them i don't think any of them do so i mean it's february 7th has marked the era of a long service life of 90 a220s and i'm personally looking forward to it because i'm an airbus fan so i'm going to be trying to get on an a220 as soon as i can uh, but i know matt's also a boeing guy so i'd like to see and hear your perspective on this coming from that standpoint yeah so um you know i gotta i'll, I'll give props to where props are due i'll i'll uh i'll commend delta for um you know going out on a limb and trying this new uh airplane um I gotta say, like, I was a fan of it back when it was still owned by Bombardier and it was still the C-Series, so I'm not gonna pretend like just because it's an Airbus now means it's a crappy plane, even though I am more of a Boeing supporter. Um, I'm really happy that Delta is, um, you know, expanding on the regional markets with this new airplane because, you know, like we've mentioned in segments past and episodes past, um, the regional market is one that needs a lot of um, attention right now, especially since... Um, passengers are starting to grow tired of um, small cramped airplanes on the more regional routes but um yeah like i said um i'm really excited to uh for this airplane to become popular in the u.s i think it'll be um a great um addition to delta's fleet in that it'll be serving um you know some of the shorter uh routes that are not quite transcontinental but um you know from like New York to Dallas Fort Worth, so like halfway across the country, and it just provides um, a better um, passenger experience. And you know, knowing me, I'm all about uh, the quality of the flight and the passenger experience and the um, the comfort of the airplane. And so I think that um, you know, even though never trying the A220, I'm really excited to. But um, I think that the A220 does check all those boxes, and that it provides um, the most comfortable 
ride as possible and um i gotta say I, i'm gonna give a shout out to um bombardier designers on this one i love the design idea of having um a window in the bathroom i think that gives a huge aesthetic and um huge like it, it's i think it's derived from um private jets and i think it gives off that you know new sort of not private jet aesthetic but like uh new uh you know sleek really exciting new jet and um you know, I like I said, I I, I can't bash it. I, I just I, I can't bash it here just because it's an Airbus. So I'm really excited for it to be, uh, like I said, become popular in the U.S. Yeah, that's one thing I failed to mention you know, when I was talking about it for uh, previously. Uh, yeah, the window in the bathroom and to me that's really cool. It does give you that private jet aesthetic, um, but also just the humorous side of me. Um, I can imagine a lot of things people will be doing in the bathroom now that there's a window. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it'll be interesting. But yeah, like I've never, you know, out of all my entire life, I've never seen a window in a restroom because I've never flown on a private jet, so I don't even know what those are like. But on a commercial airliner, no, I've never seen. So I think it'll be something really, really cool. Even something as small as a window in the restroom, I think that'll be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, the comfort fact that's also something for me is like, and I think something that people often overlook in the when you talk about airline comfort and aircraft comfort is the the look of the plane when you walk into a plane and you see like the brand new boeing interior or these the brand if you see a brand new interior period it's just going to feel more comfortable than if you walk into an old md80 and it's kind of got the really old overhead uh flight attendant call buttons and whatnot i i think people often overlook how much the look of an aircraft can give the comfort feeling a boost. Well, I don't know. That could just be me. You know, I, I, I largely agree. I mean, um, I will admit that my opinion is a little bit biased because of the fact that I am able to travel on a very reduced budget or for free. And so I do highly prioritize passenger comfort. But, um, you know, not United doesn't have any of these yet, so I'm not able to go on and experience the A220 unless I want to pay for a ticket on Delta which I'd be more than willing to do just to try it out. Um, but yeah, as of right now, um, I'm looking at this from a passenger comfort perspective because I think that is largely to what or what the market is moving towards. And uh, I think um, Delta was wise in purchasing a lot of these aircraft when no one else was because if it ends up being successful, then Delta is going to be praised for um, operating a large fleet of these because I believe they have around 50 on order either on order now or being delivered within the next couple years and so um i'm really hoping that uh maybe united american um considers buying them as well i'm not sure that united will just because um, like i already mentioned they're investing in the new uh 175e2s and also the crj 550s so i'd not sure if they have any plans to purchase any a220s maybe um if it uh, proves to be a very successful airplane maybe united american will consider buying them but um like i said i gotta just give nothing but props to delta for taking the chance on it and um you know trying to invest in passenger comfort yeah okay and so here's the question i just thought of i'm gonna ask you is this you know the airlines and american especially it's been taught having all this talk about hey we're gonna phase out our md80s but they're kind of still in service and you know you do wonder when they're going to finally get rid of them and you know they keep saying they're going to be gone but they're not gone 
Um, does this A220 with Delta kind of give the others a reason to buy these aircraft and maybe legitimately phase out the MD-80? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question because American most recently said that they plan to, I believe they plan to phase out all the MD uh, aircraft by 2020. That I might be wrong in the year on that, but I know it's within the next year or two. And so um, that is going to create a need for uh, a new, like, sort of everyday workhorse of an aircraft. And, um, you know, I do see the A220 as um, sort of replacing some of that market. However, you got, uh, it is important to remember that um, some of the larger MD aircraft um, did hold, or they still do hold more passengers than I believe the a220 does and so i'm not exactly sure if american plans on replacing the entire fleet with um smaller capacity aircraft however um they are going to need to do something about it if they actually plan on replacing the entire fleet within the next couple years and it's going to be interesting to see if they consider buying the a220 i can't say i know for sure but um i think it would be a really good uh decision on their part if they do decide to consider the a220 yeah and I don't know. Do you consider personally an MD-80 a a mainline aircraft in that it does the longer routes, or do you consider the MD-80 more of a regional aircraft, even though it's technically not a regional aircraft? Uh, yeah, you're right. It's technically not a regional aircraft. However, it doesn't. I don't believe it. It's was made to or does anymore fly sort of the longer routes. Like the longest um, the longest MD aircraft flight I've been on was from San Jose, California to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that's a good two and a half hour flight, give, uh, give or take uh, maybe a half hour or so due to winds. But um, let me tell you, like that aircraft is just not comfortable at all to fly in. So, um, you know, that's what Delta's already using their A220s for is, um, you know, the sort of the halfway across the country flights. Uh, like like uh, we saw they're flying it from uh, New York to Dallas Fort Worth so if they continue to uh, use them on these routes maybe the A220 will get established as an airplane that can well serve that type of route but it'll be interesting to see um, if air other airlines like American and United do decide to get it if they decide to use it in the same type of routes that Delta does um, I could honestly see it going either way I think um, it could be well served as even doing inter-California routes or uh, just one state over routes like from San Francisco to Phoenix, something like that. Or I could see it being successful in the longer halfway across the country routes from San Francisco or San Jose to Minneapolis. I could see it going either way. Yeah, and that's kind of like the weird area we're in with those MD-80s and now the 220 is like, where are we going to use them? It's like, you know, the MD-80s aren't really used for their transcon. They're not used for transcon, maybe halfway across, just as the A220 is now. So that's kind of glaring, blaring similarities right there between them. So it could be foreshadowing of what they plan to do with them. Delta, I don't know. I don't think they publicly announced getting rid of their MD-80s, but if they're going to be using them on the same type of routes, uh, newer airplane they're comparable in uh compare carrying capacity you know obviously mda has probably got a few more but it's close enough i think so you're kind of in that weird gray area where it's like are they going to replace their routes they're going to be doing completely new routes but i think only time will tell and uh there'll probably be new information coming out on this weekly so it'll probably be in some of my segments a lot because i'm the airbus guy here and matt's the the boeing person 
So, uh, yeah, but I don't know. I think it's a huge step forward for Delta, and uh, I'm really looking forward to what the future holds for not only them as a company, but the A220 as an aircraft. All right, so we'll be back here next week with all the latest in the world of aviation. But if you can't wait that long and want to hear more, then go subscribe to our social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Final underscore Turning and on Facebook and YouTube at Turning Final. We are now also available on many different podcast platforms, including Spotify, so you can come catch new episodes wherever you like to listen. As always, if you'd like to support us in making this podcast, then you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Turning Final, where you can become a supporter and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next week, and this has been Turning Final.